If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semifinals, all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply. Welcome to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit TobinBrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. everybody and welcome to the show. As always, we're here for our friends at Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Today, we're joined by one of Australia's most inspiring sportswomen and an ICC Cricket Hall of Famer. The first woman to score 1,000 runs and take 100 wickets in the one-day format, Lisa Stalaker's career was one born from resilience and perseverance. A former captain who was a leading figure in the middle throughout her 12-year international career, is now a leading voice off it. Lisa, hello, welcome, and thanks so much for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. So that ICC Hall of Fame induction actually was only last year. I mean, I imagine that's humbling at, at the best of times, but you were then also welcomed by the great Sonny Gaviscar as well. That might have been borderline <laughs> overwhelming. Yeah, I, I mean, I've been fortunate enough to have worked with... Uh, Sonny Gavaska for now probably six years with the IPL. So um, we get along really well. He's got such a dry sense of humour. So I wasn't quite sure where he was going to go with the the induction speech. Um, But, of course, he brought it back to our surnames and how we're all somewhat related, albeit distant. Um, But, yeah, I mean, the disappointing thing, I guess, is that it all happened in pandemic and missed out on on taking my father to the awards ceremony and um which is kind of nice to repay him for all of the effort that he has done and given up throughout uh, my early childhood and driving me around and missing work and and going to tournaments well, coming out of COVID, and you mentioned that, you mentioned the IPL. I mean, in this part of the world here in Australia is such a tremendous feeling and having all the things we love back and, and none more so than a than a summer of cricket, of course. Now, you'd seen as closely as anyone, I guess, the devastation firsthand through this year's IPL. You're in India, part of the Australian contingent, if we can call it that. And the federal government shuts the borders in Australia. And, and there's a, in fact, there's a five-year jail sentence, if you don't mind, or a fine if you tried to sneak back in. I mean... Can you take us back to that period? How difficult was that for you and those that were there with you? Yeah, it was um, It was an interesting time because whilst the cricket was still going on with the IPL, I think there was still another four weeks potentially to go. So we were everyone was hopeful that things would subside, the Australian government would come back on, on their claims of you can't come into the country. But obviously things escalated even more and... Uh, I think the thing that got me got me the most was the fact that the Australian government said you can't come back. You're an Australian citizen, but we don't want you. Basically, uh, I understand the reasons why they wanted to get, keep this country safe, but 
um, especially for the cricketers. We were in bio bubbles, um, getting tested every three days, and yet every other overseas in player and commentator was able to go home, but we weren't. So that's something that um, I think for those that are still stuck outside of Australia um, is something really hard to swallow. And for those living in Australia and, and in COVID-free conditions, especially over in Western Australia, I don't think they quite understand that when you're told you actually can't come home. Is it too strong a uh, question to ask if you felt let down by the federal government at that time? Uh, look, like I said, I understand the reasons behind it, but to impose a five-year jail sentence, the fines, um, no word of when that potentially would be lifted, the ban, um, you know, there was there was no real correspondence. And I, I guess I'm quite thankful that I was with a group of cricketers, part of the BCCI um, for their tournament, so they were always going to look after us. But I felt for so many people overseas by themselves. Yeah. And so just on that, when you did eventually leave, and I think the flight took you to the Maldives initially, so you leave India, your country of birth, obviously, which we'll document mm -hmm. the history of that shortly. Um, and as a country at the time that was seriously hurting, of course, and there were a lot of deaths and a lot of cases, was the feeling one of relief for you to get out of that? Or was it another feeling entirely, given your history with the nation? Um probably mixed emotions. Uh, I think glad to, to kind of be coming home, even though we didn't know when we were coming home. Um, <clears throat> for me, I have a lot of friends over there who um, were really devast devastated by. Sorry, take your time. No rush. Oh, Sorry, mate. Sorry. Sorry, mate. No, I mean, it's okay. I'm okay to talk about Ah. Uh, for me, it, I had friends who had lost family members and it was just hard to, to walk away from that. Yeah, yeah, Malcolm. I can understand that. Everyone could understand that. Um, how do you look back on your career, Lisa? Look, it's, it's just an incredible journey. Started at New South Wales, humble beginnings, I suppose, in the summer of 97, 98, and you went on and you played eight tests, 125 ODIs, 54 T20s for Australia, just for good measure, there were two 50-over World Cup titles, two T20 World Cup titles along the way, Ashes triumphs. Do you pinch yourself at times? You were named Australian International Cricketer of the Year in 07 as well. When you summarise it all and, and look back on it all, do you pinch yourself at times at just how, how it turned out? Yeah, certainly really lucky. Um, <clears throat> when I took up the game of cricket, I firstly didn't even realise women actually played the game. I thought it was just a, a men's game, a boys' game. And thankfully, I realised after a few years that women did play and they had a, a rich history. Um, but still, for me, cricket was a sport that my father loved, that I wanted to kind of follow in his footsteps, have something uh, in common with him. Um, and then probably around 15 to 16, probably started to, to focus my attention on, on trying to make that Australian team. Never in my wildest dreams did I think that I would spend a long period of time playing international cricket and go to the countries that I did. And, and because of the experiences I've had now allows me the fortunate position of being a commentator and traveling around the world. 
Do you shake your head at the transformation of the game? I mean, your career spanned an incredible period of growth for the women's game. I mean, comparing it, I guess, to when you were coming through to when you're in the MCG commentary box last year's World Cup, of course, 86,000 people are there. Katy Perry singing. It's the highest attended women's sporting event in this country and the second biggest globally. It is unbelievable, the transformation. Yeah, never did I think um, I would see a huge increase and that we'd see over 86,000 people pack the MCG to watch a women's game. And, you know, people say, oh, but it was a concert as well with Katy Perry. But, you know, I was out there on the ground doing the pre-show and when Katy Perry came out to sing, there was a few people up dancing, but majority they were there with their green and gold or their Indian shirts and flags and, you know, they were there to actually watch the cricket um, and uh, to see that many past players, past volunteers from around the country fly in for the, I have to be here for this moment. Like this is a pinch yourself moment. You don't want to miss it. Um, it was a great celebration of women's cricket and what everyone has done across Australia to get it to this point. So your journey, obviously born in India, as we said, migrating to Australia as a, as a whippersnapper and, and playing the game. Have we done enough in this country, do you think, with all the work you're doing, which we'll get to later as well with the junior programs up there in New South Wales, to perhaps, I don't know, bridge the culture gap, if you like, given the years of migration from the subcontinent? Are you surprised more haven't followed in your footsteps? Junior's one thing, but then to go on after that? I, the main thing is that there is a cultural difference, Um you know, and those that have immigrated to Australia, I was very fortunate that I had parents that were very supportive um, and allowed me to to fulfil my dreams, basically. Uh, and it wasn't necessarily, I mean, study and, and um, going to university was always part of what my father wanted me to do, and, and I did that. But he was very supportive of me following my dreams on the sporting field. That's not necessarily the case for all families from a subcontinent um, country uh, because there is, I, I guess you've got to take in a, a number of factors in the in the sense that a lot of them have immigrated, they're first Australians, uh, the, the kids, so they're trying to make a life. The families have given up a lot to come to this country. So they want their children to be in a better position than themselves potentially. So... There's those type of barriers, but then also here in Australia, whilst we're a sporting nation, um, women's sport especially has only just come up. Like only now can you make a profession from it, you know, and we're fortunate. I think, you know, a 12 to 13-year-old right now has the luxury of choosing any path she wants if she's a talented athlete. And most of them are probably good at three or four different sports. So they've got, you know, They've got the AFLW, they've got the WBBL, you've got netball, you've got basketball, you've got uh, football as well. So there are great some domestic competitions now in this country. So I think it will change um, now that there is um, a career that can be made. Whereas before, when I was playing, it was just for the love of the game, for the passion, for, for the contest. Well, you certainly had all of that and more. You're listening to This Is Your Journey, thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Up next, we'll revisit Lisa Stalaker's incredible journey from Indian orphanage to emerging star. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives.
You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, it's great to have your company on This Is Your Journey, made possible by Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. And we're chatting with the Aussie cricket legend, Lisa Stalaker. Lisa, you're born in Pune, India, as Layla, and you're placed in an orphanage when your biological parents couldn't support you. It's a, it was a heck of a way to start your life. Yeah, well, I didn't know about it, did I? Three weeks of age <laughs> and, um, yeah, I guess uh, the great thing uh, for me was that there was an orphanage right up, uh, next to the hospital um, and I was one of many. But thankfully, um, three weeks later, uh, my adoptive parents came by actually looking for a son um, looking to fulfil their family. They had already adopted a girl from Bangalore, so they wanted to have a little boy um, and they hadn't connected with any children at the time and someone within in the orphanage said, um, there's this little girl that's out on loan because there were so many newborns. They There wasn't enough staff to look after them so and give them the TLC that is required. So what they did was they put it at you know, weekends or something along those lines, they, they'd foster the kids out for a couple of days just to get that attention and care. So uh, my adoptive parents swung by with my sister and supposedly they fell in love with me and um, that afternoon, that evening, I was off on my new adventure with a new family. Uh, so that family was your Indian-born father, uh, Haran, if I pronounce that right? Yeah, Haran. Haren and Sue, who was born yep. in England, of course. So yep. they're holidaying in India, as you say, at the time. And they lived in Michigan in the States? Yeah. So um, obviously my mum was white English, my father Indian. They met when my father was studying over in England, um, married in the 60s, uh, an Indian and a white English woman, which was a little bit scandalous at the time. Um, <laughs> moved to India for a couple of years uh, and then because of my father's work went to the US so um they they my father still had family over there so they'd visit India regularly so Haren Christian missionary correct because you spent a couple of years I think in Kenya in these early days as well yep my father was a minister with the seven day adventists um so he was studying there uh and then from so when they adopted me went back to Michigan for about 18 months and um, then he had a posting in uh, Nairobi, Kenya, uh, where he was in charge of East Africa uh, for the Seven Day Adventists. Um, stayed there for eighteen months. Uh, my father was about to to embark on another career because my father changes every ten years, and uh, he was going to study medicine in uh, Kingston, Jamaica. And uh, my family had already lived in Australia prior, so they were all Australian citizens, and I was still on an Indian passport, so. From Kenya, we kind of came to Australia so that I could get the Australian citizenship and then we were off to the West Indies. But uh, the all of us girls kind of said, how about we just stay in this country? This looks pretty cool. Now, obviously, you know nothing about this at the time, but does one ever think back and talk about sliding doors moments, wonder what your life might have been like, where you might be, what you might be doing had you not been adopted then and there? Yeah, I mean, I went back to the orphanage in 2012 and <clears throat> and with the Australian team, we went to an orphanage as well in, in uh, Chennai in 2007 and it was probably the first time I went to an orphanage in India in 2007 and I sat there looking at all the kids going, 
wow, this could have been me, you know. And if they weren't adopted, they stayed within the system, they got educated, and then once they were 18, they were left to their own devices, so to speak. Um, and I was thinking I was very, very lucky. Um, who knows where I would have ended up if they hadn't adopted me. Um, I could have been in Europe. I could still be in India. Um, but certainly I was very lucky. So you're settling into life uh, in Australia, a new life for you. But who introduces you to the game of cricket? Yeah, my father, you know, Indian-born, cricket runs in their blood. Um, and I was daddy's little girl. Anything that my father did, I loved. So collect stamps, model trains, um, hung out with him. I, I prefer, unlike my sister who preferred reading books uh, inside and not kind of venturing outdoors, I was like get me outdoors, let me catch tadpoles in the, the little creeks. And um, so, yeah, so fa my father kind of played in the backyard with me and took us to the SCG when I was seven or eight years of age and loved the atmosphere, thought it was pretty cool, um, and then obviously saw kids playing on a weekend and said, Dad, I want to play cricket. And he said, they're all boys. I don't think girls can play cricket. But... Thankfully, he inquired at the local club, which was West Pennant Hills Cherry Brook, and they allowed me to try out for the under-10s. Yep, and that's a boys' team, of course. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but you drive up for the first time, you're watching an all-boys team run around in the nets. How keen were you on getting out of the car for that first session? Not that keen, no. <laughs> <laughs> I certainly, um, you know, you know when you have great ideas, you're like, yeah, let's do this, and then you get there and you're like, ah, nah, actually, yep, I don't yep. want to. Um you know, but thankfully my father, all the way through my career, just when I kind of balked at things, he gave me the support that I needed and just gave me the, the polite push out the door, you'll be fine, off you go. Um, and whilst, you know, training didn't necessarily go to plan my first session, um, I was able in the first match pick up a wicket within my first delivery. So the boys all of a sudden loved me because I was getting out their mates and they could tease them at school probably because they got out by a girl. So um, I was well-liked well by my team, which certainly helped. Self-taught off-spinner, correct? Yeah, as much as my father reckons he taught me. He's got no idea yeah. if you saw him bowl. It'd be quite embarrassing. But, um, uh, yeah, self-taught, you know, um, and that's something that I, I pass on to a lot of kids that, you know, you're told to... So as an off-spinner, everyone said get your seam pointing down to fine leg so that you'll actually get the ball in the right position. No one taught you how to do it. Like I would be bowling flying saucers because the ball would come out the side of my hand. So it didn't turn, did nothing. It was just slow pus basically. Um, but it, one summer I, I kind of grabbed a few balls and went down to the local net and tried different grips and finally, I found a way to get the seam in the right position. And from there, I started to actually turn the ball and get the ball to dip. What I love is that, uh, Lisa, you're playing with West Pennant Hills, the boys' team there. And even when you discover that, there, yes, in fact, there is a, a girls' team and a girls' competition, you, you keep playing with the boys anyway. So it, when you're 13, you're playing with the boys in the morning and the girls in the afternoon, aren't you? Yeah, and it was... It was actually probably the best thing for me. And you look at when when I made the Australian team, everyone had come up through the boys' competitions. Um, and even I remember so someone like a Lauren Cheadle who's in the Sydney Sixers at the moment, when she was younger because she's regional, uh, New, regional New South Wales, her father was saying, when do we bring her up to women's grade cricket in Sydney? I said, 
no rush. She's got a whole lifetime to play with women. Like, just bo- play boys cricket because you, you get thrown into situations that probably you're not comfortable with, that there's some guy who's a little bit quicker who wants to bump you. There's guys probably teasing you that you're a girl. You know, all of those things actually, if you can find a way to get on the other side of it and be re- quite resilient, um, it makes you a stronger cricketer. So, yeah, I played with the boys up until under 16s and we actually um, we actually went up an age group because the first two years we won really easily in our age group. So we started playing older guys. We didn't win as many games, but... Um, we were certainly challenged. So, um, and there was about three or four guys that I played from under tens through to under sixteens, which was great. So, when did the game get, I guess, serious for you, if I can term it, Lisa? That there might be a future for you in the game. I know there was tennis and other sports you played growing up, like we all do. But I think the year you finished school, you made the New South Wales Open's women's team. Was that the moment? Was that when the focus truly narrowed? Yeah, probably. Um... I made the New South Wales under-18 side when I was 15 or 16, I think it was, and I was opening the batting and couldn't buy a run to save myself, whereas everyone else was scoring runs for fun and got dropped for the final, and I was like, I never want to be in this position again. Um, So that's probably when I started to become really serious about my cricket. I wanted to be first selected in every team I didn't want to be that oh should we pick her should we not you know so um that's when I started to to put more attention to cricket um my father was um he was a hypnotherapist counselor and a sports psychologist all rolled into one so I had I think I had the distinctive advantage um to really uh work on mental rehearsal or visualization goal setting um, and that's when I started to write things down and, and how I was going to achieve things and what were the little targets along the way for me to reach it. When you started university, um, your beautiful mum was diagnosed with, with cancer, Lisa, and uh, obviously, to make a massive understatement, hard days, I'm sure. And anyone who's had a loved one you know, go through cancer or, or lost to cancer tells you how enormously difficult it is. I suppose, watching them deteriorate. You you would go to uni, then you'd take your mum to hospital, then you'd go to training. Uh, these must have been super challenging times for you and your family. Yeah, it, it was. I guess from a, an outsider's point of view, it, it, it looks very challenging, but that was my reality. That was my life, and um, it didn't seem difficult at the time. It was tiring, <laughs> Um, and it, yeah. and for those that sit around hospital rooms, it is exhausting. I don't know why. We don't do anything. You're literally reading, watching TV and talking and watching them sleep. But um, you get so exhausted just being there. And, and what we did was um, one of us would always stay that night. So mum would never be by herself throughout that time. So, um, yeah, it was a difficult time, but I was thankful because I also um, – uh, took a year off uni to spend more time with mum and I'm very glad that I did that. Do you think your mum saw enough before she passed to know that you were really going to make it? Well, I was fortunate enough to, to get selected um, for the Australian side in 2001 and it was an Ashes tour and my mum was actually in between chemo um, sessions but we managed to, to work it out with the doctors that she could fly over and we wrote a letter to Qantas as well, um, and they upgraded her to first class. And yeah, So she got to see me play, so that was good. 
That's awesome. That is fantastic. Uh, you're with This Is Your Journey, and it's brought to you by Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. You can visit them at tobinbrothers.com.au. Next, Lisa Stalaker's international cricket career takes flight. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, we hope you're enjoying this week's edition of This Is Your Journey. We're with the inspirational Lisa Stalaker. So, Lisa, the Women's National Cricket League was the scene of your debut in the summer of 97-98. You're playing for New South Wales. Specialist bowler back then, but your maiden campaign totals figures of... Uh, totals, anyway, of one for 120. Now, what you touched Ouch. on before was... Not, I know, but not to be discouraged. It seemed as though that just lit a fire inside you. The, the more setbacks, and cricket is full of setbacks, they just seem to steal you. I think, um, I think one thing you have to learn, especially in cricket, you seek for that perfect innings, for that perfect spell, but you never really get it. You know, there may be maybe a handful of times in your career, um, but once you've tasted some success, it keeps you going. One thing I realised the first tour that I played was I thought I had to change my game. I actually thought I had to play differently because I was now playing for Australia or I was playing England, you know, I was playing a higher opposition. Um, And it took that tour for me to realise, actually, the reason why I was selected was because of these traits. I don't need to go away from that. So um, it was a great lesson, that tour, Um, you know, things didn't go my way. I got injured a lot as well. I did my ankle before we flew flew out to, to England. And um, and then I did a quad injury as well once I was coming back and um, ran drinks for the two test matches, you know. So all of those type of things where you have to do fitness in the morning as well, like well, things that you don't want to do really on tour, I had to do. So, um, yeah, learnt, learnt a lot of hard lessons in that, that first tour. So that determination to improve, though, like we touched on, didn't just apply to your, your bowling. It obviously applied to, to your batting. And in the space of, what do you reckon, four to five seasons, you went from, if I may be so bold, lower order 11, uh, battler yeah, to, to, to frontline consistent performer. Now, how did you do that? Because it was really hard to get time in the middle for New South Wales at this point because you were so bloody strong. Well, junior cricket, I was a, I was an opening batter. Um, so... You know, my skill set was, and I've always seen myself as a batting all-rounder that bowls a bit of off-spin. My figures now would show you that I'm probably more of a bowling all-rounder, which is a shame I never quite kicked on from a batting perspective. Um, But to get into, because I was a young player as well, you know, 18, 19, getting into the New South Wales team, there was an uh, opening for an off-spinner. So, yes, the New South Wales side was... Star started with Belinda Clark, Lisa Kitely, Sally Griffiths, um, Julie Hayes, all of these big names. Um, and the only way for me to play in that side was to be the little off spinner. So I batted down the order and, um, you know, had some good little innings and um, got got the team home against WA in a really tight tussle at the SCG in 99 and um, then slowly found my way up the order to the point where I, I started to open the batting um, with Lisa Kitely because Belinda Clark had moved down to Victoria because of work. So, yeah, that showed as well the Australian selectors that I can play at the top of the order. So, um, 
it wasn't until, you know, by the back end of my career, I found my spot as number four, which I was pretty comfortable with. Um, but yeah, uh, I mean, again, you learn so many different things coming down the order. You have to go from ball one, have to find different ways of scoring runs. Um, but as we all know, for those that love cricket and those that get to play it, the best time to bat is at the top. Well, geez, you're being super modest to say that your batting never really kicked on because, okay, your, your Ashes debut was mid-2001, but a couple of years later, um, you get the call up in 03, of course. Your batting's improved steadily. You're still a bowler at this point, but your test debut against England, you carve out 120 not out, if you don't mind. I think that remained your highest test score over over the duration. That Was a, that was, a, was that the turning point to perhaps becoming a batting all-rounder as opposed to a bowler who could bat a bit? Yeah, that, that test match was the second test match, actually. I opened the batting up, up at the Gabba and I think I got a duck and like one off 35 deliveries or something like that. And then we went down to Bankstown. They dropped me down to the middle order, which yeah. I think suited me a little bit better. And um, we were actually in a really difficult situation and just needed to spend time out in the middle. I think it's the second innings. And thankfully was able to build a partnership with Alex Blackwell. So... Um, that was quite good. Uh, but yeah, look, for me, I've always, if I was to rate my performances, if I batted well um, and uh, and took none for 45, it would be a great day. But if I got 15 and I took a fourfer, I still wouldn't be happy. So Shows you where right. my mindset was. <laughs> the 05 World Cup victory in South Africa. You're part of a team that obviously goes undefeated throughout the tournament. You take seven wickets at 22, 165 runs at 41, and 55 of those runs coming in the final against uh, India. Uh, a big fourth wicket stand with Karen Rolton. I think you were three for 71 when you came to the crease. Th- these were just these must have been great days. Yeah, I mean, you get to play your first World Cup. You play with legends of the game who you know, have been inducted rightly into the ICC Hall of Fame. Um, the Australian team had disappointingly lost the, the final in the 2000 World Cup against New Zealand. So there was a lot hinging on us walking away with the trophy. And um, to get, and I, I spent a lot of time out in the middle with Karen Rolton and it was the best position in the field because I was right up the other end as as she kind of bludgeoned the attack around the park. So um, yeah, to, to have played in that era with those players, they, they to me, they're, they're pinch-yourself moments. Not what I've achieved, but who I've got to play with. And there was more World Cup success, T20 format in 2010, 2012, but we have to talk about the 2013 World Cup in India and your glorious curtain call here. So you beat the West Indies in the final. You take two for 20 with the ball. You take a blinding catch at mid-wicket yeah. to secure the trophy. I mean, this is uh, this is scriptwriter stuff. Yeah, and and I had only told my family and probably three friends who weren't in the Australian team that I was going to retire in 2013 at the World Cup. And the, the plan and the hope was to be in the final. Um, and Mumbai was a place that um, I had visited regularly as a child because my grandmother used to live there. So quite happy memories. And it was a ground that actually my father used to go and watch test cricket as a young boy. And it was because of his love that I got into cricket. So it, it just seemed a perfect time. Um, mm. The next generation was coming through. Meg Lanning um, was playing in the side. Elisa Healy was on the bench. Can you believe it in that World Cup? Um, so 
we had wonderful, talented cricketers coming through. So it was time to hopefully win a trophy. And that meant we had um, the T20 trophy, the 50 uh, uh, World Cup trophy and the Ashes. And I thought, perfect time to go. And thankfully, everything worked to a T. It did. So, Lisa, with all of this on your resume, what do you say, what is the game about at the highest level? I mean, what separates the good from the very good and the very good really from the great? Because you all have talent at that level. That's why you're there. But but what of holding your nerve, a singular focus, executing under pressure, that need to be mentally strong? Yeah, it's it's all of that. Like you said, everyone can play cover tri- drive. Everyone can take a catch. Everyone can, for the bowlers, can bowl good line, good length. Um, but what I've seen, the ones that excel uh, are the ones that are mentally the strongest that can bounce back and put things in perspective pretty quickly. Um, and and also the ones that are meticulous with their preparation. And it doesn't always have to be physical. It could be the mental side of the game as well. So they're the players that I've seen over decades, you know, really um, they stand out amongst the rest. Um and I had great role models growing up. You know, my first captain was Belinda Clark, not a bad person. I mean, she scared yep. the bejeebas out of me, but, um, <laughs> you know, she, she was a great person to to look at and try to model and try to, to follow in what she did. Um, and the same thing from an Australian level as well. So um, I was very blessed with the people around me, whether it be my teammates, coaching staff, and then also the, the love and support from my family. We're talking to Lisa Stalaker on This Is Your Journey. Thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Stay with us. We'll be back after this short break. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, it's been great to have your company here on This Is Your Journey. Thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Lisa Stalake has been our guest today. Lisa, we have to talk about this. Going from in front of the camera to behind it as a commentator. Now, was this something you always wanted to do? Yep. Um, Well, not straight away, but... I got an opportunity in 2010 and commentated five overs in between Mark Nicholas and Tony Gregg, and I thought this gig is pretty bloody good. How do I get? How do I ensure that I do that? Um, and when I retired in 2013, I was still working full time at Cricket New South Wales, which I'd done throughout my career. And I hung around for another year and thought, no, nah, I want to get into media. How do I do it? Um, left my job, didn't have anything to go to, but was hoping that, you know, I could do a bit of coaching just to sustain whilst try and get some radio gigs, see, you know, hang around um, Channel 9 uh, studio like a bad smell and see if, you know, they, they'd want to use me. The main thing was that I watched the game, I loved it. I, I thought I had an opinion and there were no females in broadcast at that time. And I thought, why aren't women... Why can't women give an opinion? Because there are so many females watching the game. Wouldn't it be nice to have a a female voice articulating or explaining what the game is? So, um, yeah, I guess the main opportunity I got was in 2015 when um, 
a manager contacted me saying, oh, someone, you know, we think the IPL want to have female commentators. Would you be interested? And I'm thinking, yeah, that's my 10-year goal, but sure, go for it, mate, thinking I don't know who this guy is. Um, and two weeks later, he rings me up. He goes, yeah, you're in. And I'm like, oh, okay, I, have, I actually don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> so kind of got <laughs> thrown in the deep end. Um, Eden Gardens, 70,000 people. Um, director screaming in your ear, talking, you know, because you have the director all the time in your ear. And then I was in between Danny Morrison, for those that know him, the crazy New Zealand commentator, and then Pommy Mbangwa, Zimbabwean fast bowler, and who's very slow and meticulous with their thoughts. So I had, like, the polar opposites. But I learnt a lot during that, that uh, eight-week tournament. And, um, and, yeah, my career, kind of my second career has started, and... Fingers crossed that it keeps going along. Oh, no doubt about that. And, gee, thrown into the deep end, that doesn't sound like broadcasting. Hey, striking <laughs> a balance, though, between being critical and informative, has that been a juggle? Because viewers obviously expect their pundits to, to call it as they see it. Can that be hard when you've, I guess, shared a locker room with the people you're now expected to analyse and assess and critique? I, I think uh, for the Australian team and my mates, um, as their stock started to rise and more broadcasts started to happen. People weren't just doing the fluffy stories anymore. Isn't it great to see, a, a, you know, Ian Healy's niece out there playing the game? Like it was time to talk about and critique how she's going as a player. And because I knew the players, I could do that. And I remember it probably the first few years they would kind of go, you're media now, we don't want to talk to you. And I was like, <laughs> but guys, I'm still the same person. Like, I'm not going to throw you under the bus. But if it's really bad or if something's not quite right or you got out playing a silly shot, I'm not saying something that's factually incorrect. Like, so it was a learning curve for both them and probably me of what is the line, you know, because I still do have mates within the team and they tell me sometimes of little injuries or niggles that I don't, air out on public but gives me a bit of an insight because I'm their friend um so there is there was a learning curve for both parties I think during those early years so before we let you go Lisa the commentary's obviously kept you super busy in retirement but you've knocked down some doors as well I mean you were the first female executive on the ACA I think you, are you still in your second stint there yep and the first, um, oh, you won the Kerry Packer Award. You're on the, you're still on the board for the Federation of International Cricketers as well? Yes, I am, yeah. And still doing some work with New South Wales development programs and the junior teams there? No, I, um, I, when I left Cricket New South Wales, um, I walked away from that role. But I've recently come back as the, the Sydney Sixers list manager for the WBB on <laughs> the Big Bash. So um, that's been a lot of fun. So, with, yeah, with I all mean. all that spare time you've got. My life, my life is cricket, but the great thing is that there are so many different aspects to it. So obviously commentating, um, list manager uh, on boards to, to you know, and, and the, like the FICA one is all about trying to make sure the players associations around the world ensure that they're looking after the female players as well and some obviously some big negotiations coming up with the ICC. Um, and then I do a bit of coaching with Slow Coach as well. So it's a digital coaching platform, which is nice to actually get back and, and you know, look at a, a 13 or 14-year-old batting technique and, and give them drills and little tips on how they can improve. So, um, yeah, there's enough to keep me busy, that's for sure. 
Lisa, I have to say, thanks so much for donating your time today. I mean, your story is such a powerful motivator and really is living proof that, you know, humble beginnings can blossom into magnificent things. And when rankings are introduced, you can always say you were regarded as the best all-rounder in the world and your talents have extended to the commentary box where your analysis is respected the world over. And I think the fact you continue to give back to the game is the beautiful bonus as well. So well done on all you achieved and thanks so much for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. And thank you for joining us also. You've been listening to This Is Your Journey for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Jump online. You can find them at tobinbrothers.com.au. And we'll catch you the next time we celebrate the life of another sporting icon. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au. Predict Australia's score with a crystal ball. And it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semifinals. All thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply.